Hi, I'm Samantha, a past guest on C-Jam's HandyLink. You're listening to HandyLink on C-Jam 99.1 FM, reaching high ground in Windsor, Detroit. Sponsored by the Italian-Canadian Handy Capable Association, an organization that provides recreational and athletic opportunities for individuals with disabilities in Windsor-Essex. For more information, check out ICHA on Facebook. I'm your host, Cam Wells. In this segment of our show, Ben Fulton will be giving us an update on his advocacy efforts. So, can you tell me a little bit about your latest advocacy work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one case I was working on recently uh, involved my guide dog, Abby Rowe, lovable, faithful companion, and an incident involving a refusal of service at a, a gas station in BC. And uh, we filed a complaint with the Human Rights Tribunal. Um, it was actually quite a big um, incident for us. Um, the refusal of service had escalated when I, you know, demanded to be served with my guide dog and not, you know, leave the store. The, uh, the employee had actually called the police. Um, and when the police showed up, they'd actually arrested me for mischief. And uh, I had to file with the BC Human Rights Tribunal and the uh, Canada Human Rights Commission uh, separately because the uh, RCMP is governed federally. So there were two separate proceedings uh, and they both kind of proceeded in tandem kind of from 2019 when that incident first occurred uh, to just recently in December of 2021 uh, we were able to uh, achieve a settlement through mediation. And it was important to me to get a statement from the RCMP that acknowledged their responsibility in this situation. So I've posted that up on my webpage. People can read that. And I uh, also have a letter from Shell that details the steps that they've taken. Uh, specifically in getting more training for their staff and clearly communicating between the parent company and the uh, subsidiary locations, the importance of uh, treating persons with disabilities with respect and providing what accommodations are necessary, you know, specifically not refusing service to someone using a guide dog. So, so and I, yeah, yeah. I'm wondering, 
Do you find that incidents like that occur because people simply aren't informed that there is a duty to accommodate? Yeah, there's a problem with people not understanding, you know, the laws in Canada. And what was really, you know, appalling in this situation was the police themselves that I expected to enforce my legal rights were unaware of the situation and had sort of, you know, placed me under arrest without understanding the situation and I wanted to make sure that this situation wouldn't reoccur. Um, so there was actually uh, like steps taken on behalf of the RCMP to, you know, address this problem in um, every single location in BC. Um, I was uh, maybe originally hoping it would be Canada-wide, um, but uh, there are certain limitations to the way the uh, structure was uh, established. So, you know, um, they were able to, you know, do something throughout the province of BC, but it was sort of limited there. I mean, at the very least, I mean, I hope it makes a difference in BC. So, in that sense, do you have any advice to give others out there who might be running into situations like this, who might not know they can assert their own rights as a person with a disability? Uh, uh, well, I mean, it's important to know about your rights and that, you know, if you are using a guide dog, that you have that right to be served, that, you know, in every province in Canada, there is legislation that ensures um, persons with disability are given equal access to services. Um, you know, being aware of that is key. And, um, you know, just, you have to be willing to, you know, you have to be willing to fight for it, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Um, like, this was a two-year process, to keep in mind, uh, really two and a half years um, from the time, you know, from of the first incident there to, you know, achieving a resolution. Like, these things don't just happen overnight, you know, like, making the situation better requires a lot of time and dedication. So, I guess that's what I'm... Uh, my advice would be to be prepared to, you know, you're in it for the long haul. That's, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. So, in terms of the resolution you did achieve, are you satisfied, and do you think this will uh, help deter future incidents of someone being denied service in this way? What I was really hoping to achieve with this is in providing the people at the ground floor with the opportunities to, and the knowledge to handle these situations more effectively in the future. So there was training that was delivered to the employees of Shell. Um, there was, you know, some training that, that information that was sent to the uh, RCMP. Um, yeah, um, I would certainly hope that, you know, with more information and more awareness that um, people would be more respectful of people's human rights going forward. So, do you find that people are generally open-minded and willing to listen and they don't necessarily know all they should about, about what the legal rights are? 
someone says, hey, I have a service dog, I should still be entitled to be given the same level of service. Do you find people are willing to listen when you have something to say along those lines? You know, you get a whole range of responses. I find a lot of people know about the situation or are willing to listen. Every once in a while you encounter a situation with somebody that has set in their mind a certain position against dogs, against eye dogs, uh, against providing accommodations, you know, whatever that might end. In those situations, I find, you know, changing that person's opinion in that moment um, is very difficult. So a lot of times these processes take a long time before the changes are made. So specifically, if you're looking at this situation, when I was, you know, presenting my guide dog card to the clerk at the gas station, he wasn't really taking a look at the card. He wasn't really willing to consider the store's policy or how they might be violating the law. He was enforcing the policy that had been handed to him by the manager and didn't see the need to change that. And so then he called the police. Now the police are there to enforce the law. When they showed up, they really should have done a better job of enforcing the law. Instead, through their own misunderstanding of the situation, they uh, placed me in handcuffs. And this was commented by the commission as very egregious. Uh, we achieved a good settlement, and I'm very glad that the extra training and information is provided to the police in BC so that these kinds of incidents won't happen again in the future. But it took a long time. In that moment, I wasn't able to convince the police not to arrest me. Um, I was able to convince them not to take me all the way into the station and fingerprint me and detain me for more than an hour. Uh, I was, you know, held in the car for about 40 minutes before I was let go. And, um, you know, it was, you know, traumatic and we went on our way and I filed the complaint and it took two and a half years before we were able to really have a resolution. So, you know, the policies were changed, people's minds were opened, but it wasn't an easy road, and it was certainly not a quick one. I'd like to thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. In this segment of our show, Kirsty Stage will be telling us a little bit about her disability journey. So, can you tell me a little bit about your disability story? Yeah, of course. Um... So I've always grown up in uh, a family which doesn't, nobody identifies as disabled. Um, and in my teenage years, um, I went through different episodes of um, experiencing deafness, dizziness, and a lot of pain. Um, and it was kind of later on in life that I got a diagnosis. Um, and it was when I went to university that I was still embarrassed about it and um, didn't really want to identify as disabled. And I met some really, really great people and over time kind of got involved in disability advocacy and started to really be proud of being a disabled person and, dis and a disabled woman. Um, so, yeah, that's summarised my experience of coming to terms with my disability and my disabled identity. So, 
When you got the initial diagnosis, what were some of the coping strategies you used to deal with the shock effect that many people with disabilities experience when they first uh, realize? I was really, really upset at first. Um, and I think it was because I hadn't really known any disabled people around me um, or people who openly spoke about it. So I think meeting other people that have different lived experiences of like a similar condition or a similar diagnosis or even like different experiences generally um i found that community um and that opportunity to kind of share information share coping strategies really really helpful um i also worked a lot on communication strategies and worked out like whether there would be specific technologies or um support or um networks which would be useful for me and I think that over time kind of helped to um, help me to understand my condition but also um, to meet other people in similar um, who have similar backgrounds. So if you don't mind my asking what specific condition was it identified as? Sure um, so I have fluctuating hearing loss um, and tinnitus in both ears um, so this varies on a day-by-day basis. Um, So sometimes that means that um, my hearing is slightly below normal and then other days it's been I've completely lost my hearing Um, and I've often been more prone to um, ear infections and things like that. So did you ever encounter any myths or stereotypes concerning your condition, your advocacy efforts uh, when you said I have tinnitus? Are there ever any misperceptions surrounding it? Yeah, a lot of people that I grew up with uh, didn't know that I was disabled um, and sometimes I rely on lip reading and other strategies like that. Um, and I have people say, oh my gosh, like if I cover my mouth, will you not be able to hear what I'm saying? Um, or people saying, oh, but you're really clever. Um, so this kind of really negative stereotype of deaf people um, being dumb quote-unquote dumb um that was one that came up um or people saying oh you don't look disabled or you don't look deaf um there's always the question of well what does that look like you know um so those were kind of the main main stereotypes that came up so you've mentioned that uh, you now own your identity as someone with a disability how have you gone about clearing up that sort of uh sort of thinking in regards to the myths and misperceptions? I think often it's about normalising disability and having a conversation about what people's different lived experience is and how it affects them on a day-to-day basis. Um, For me, it's recognising that some days are really difficult and some days are slightly more easier and just being quite transparent with people about what's going on um, if I have hearing fatigue, for instance, or if I've had multiple meetings on Zoom and I'm tired, um, that sometimes does come through. And I think just doing normal day-to-day things um, can help to dispel those myths, um, but also asking for support and help if you're in the position to do so, and not everybody is. Um, has really, really helped me not only understand like what I need, but also what rights I have. And, and that's a really empower, empowering thing for me. So, in your advocacy efforts, what's been the greatest success you've experienced? 
I think it's for me having conversations on an individual level and people going away saying, oh, I learned something new or, oh, that's made me think in a different way. Um, for instance, uh, people starting to do visual descriptions in a big group um, or considering in the UK we have like a, a lanyard scheme so a hidden disability um, is represented by a sunflower so raising awareness of specific initiatives in local and national um, settings um, I'd like to see more recognition for sign language and more opportunities um, to learn that and but overall, I think, you know, we have come far and it's often in these discussions and including um, the representation of disabled people in different decision-making processes. So if you could send any message to the community of the need to keep moving forward and to foster greater inclusion, what would you say? I would really challenge people to think about where disabled people still are absent and for people to think about why that might be the case. How accessible is it? Um, what barriers are there for not getting people to the table? But also thinking about representation more broadly and taking an intersectional approach, thinking about other factors. Like people are, have multifaceted identities and understanding that and coming to terms with that is really important too. So to look at the complete person not just the disability is the sole factor in their identity. Yeah, like the disabled identity is important for a lot of people, um, but also they have other aspects of their life too. I'd like to thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Of course. Handy Link will be right back after these commercial messages, so stay tuned. So you're hanging with your inner circle. Maybe you're making cocktails. Maybe you're packing bowls. Even while we're distancing, it's important to remember, alcohol and cannabis each mess with your driving skills. Be cool. Make sure you and your friends get home safe. Take a cab if you need to. A few bucks could save a life. And we can do it again next weekend. A message from Arrive Alive, Drive Sober. Sponsored by the Italian-Canadian Handy Capable Association, an organization that provides recreational and athletic opportunities for individuals with disabilities in Windsor-Essex. For more information, check out ICHA on Facebook. I'm your host, Cam Wells. Earlier in our show, Ben Fulton gave us an update on his legal activism, and Kirsty Stage told us a little bit about her deafness story. In this segment of our show, Deborah Fowler will be telling us about Soft Bones. So, can you tell me a little bit about the work of Soft Bones? Sure. So, Soft Bones is a patient advocacy organization located in the U.S., but we support patients around the world who live with hypophosphatasia. Uh, hypophosphatasia is an ultra-rare metabolic bone disease um, where basically there's an enzyme that is uh, lacking and it causes um, 
multi-systemic uh, issues throughout the body, but the hallmark is bones. So um, patients have bones that are soft, hence the name soft bones. Uh, we didn't call it the Hypophosphatasia Foundation for a reason, because we were afraid people wouldn't would ever find us if they wanted to get information or donate because it's a, it's a tricky one and it's a, it's a long word. Um, but anyway, Sawbones um, supports patients, um, healthcare practitioners, researchers, and really connects the dots of all of those moving parts around the world with the goal of uh, putting ourselves out of business in the next uh, 10 years. We really are, are motivated to find a cure for hypophosphatasia and support patients along the way in their journeys. So how do you go about reaching out to the affected community to let them know that there is support available? That's a great question because uh, I think one of the challenges is that in many cases we don't even know who some of the members of our community are. They may have been diagnosed with hypophosphatasia and not know that we exist or they may have a low alkaline phosphatase level and not even realize that they have HPP and kind of be stuck in this diagnostic odyssey. Um, but, you know, I, I think that the birth of the internet and social media have been so incredibly <clears throat> pivotal for rare diseases because it allows us to put information out there um, like on uh, Nord or Global Genes or just through our website where people can find us if they're looking for us. And it's been a multi-pronged approach, actually, because if somebody has a low alkaline phosphatase that shows up in a traditional blood panel and they see a flag on their blood work and they Google, you know, what does it mean if I have low alkaline phosphatase? We have to make sure that there are articles out there that talk about hypophosphatasia. So we've been working really hard with WebMD, Everyday Health, some of those, uh, you know, top of the Google search publications to make sure that hypophosphatasia is included in there is something that they may want to explore with their doctor and potentially rule out. And then on the flip side, working with laboratories uh, like Quest Diagnostics or LabCorp here in the U.S., which are major labs that people go to when they have their blood work done, to ensure that in their patient portals, if there's a flag by a low alkaline phosphatase, that it does have some sort of description in there about what a low ALP means and that they ask their doctor about it to make sure that they rule out hypophosphatasia. So I'm guessing with the bones soften themselves, there's an increased risk of injury and or long-term disability? Exactly. So the way that it, it basically works, alkaline phosphatase is an enzyme that's responsible for mineralization throughout the body. So what happens is when it's low, uh, because it's a metabolic process, there are other um, substrates and, and, and chemicals in the body that end up building up because there's not enough of the enzyme to break them down. So, you know, typically when a child is uh, undermineralized, you may say, well, have more milk. Well, in this case, that doesn't help because the excess calcium, there's not enough enzyme to break it down into the minerals that the bones need to mineralize properly. And that catalyst is just um, not optimized in HPP patients. So in addition to having soft bones, curved bones, fractures, um, we also have patients who have dental issues because there's a mineralization that happens in teeth. Uh, in HPP, teeth fall out prematurely. So before the age of five, you have infants and toddlers with teeth that are growing in and literally coming out with the root intact as soon as they 
uh, fill in their gums. So it's it's one of the hallmark symptoms of HPP, uh, soft bones, the dental components. But then there's other impacts, like I was saying, of all those chemicals that are building up. People can have um, under-mineralized airwaves, uh, airways, excuse me, um, that babies may need to be on ventilators and trachs. We have um, children who have under-mineralized rib cages. And then uh, there's a huge spectrum of disease where adults may have very minimal bone involvement, and they may see more issues with their um, neuropathies. They may have brain fog. Um, there's other pieces that come with this alkaline phosphatase imbalance that we're still working to better understand. But for the most part, the hallmark is soft bones and some sort of skeletal manifestation of the disease. But like I said, it's not like that for every patient. So do you know offhand about how many people are affected by HPP? No, in fact, it, that's a, the million-dollar question. Um, there's, there's some statistics out there that are somewhat cryptic. Um, there's One of the statistics is that one in every 200 people is a carrier for the most severe um, mutation of HPP, which is a, a kind of a hard thing to wrap your head around in terms of the number of patients. Uh, and it's also challenging, even for us as a patient advocacy organization, to understand who's in our community because one person who joins our community, because it's a genetic disease, uh, that one person may be representing an entire family or several generations of people who have HPP. So as you can imagine, it's, it's hard to kind of quantify and put a number on that. We've, we've tried to encourage people to go into our HPP contact database, um, which is a, a partnership with um, what's called CORDS, which is the Coordination of Rare Diseases at Sanford. And we've asked people to just put their information in there. If you, if you have HPP, if your parent has HPP, uh, if you have a genetic background of HPP, you know, please put your information into our database so that we can start to try to have a better handle on the number of patients and what we're looking at from a global perspective. So in your time with soft bones, has there been any success moment that stands out for Absolutely. I think the biggest success was we went from not having a treatment to having a treatment. Um, you know, soft bones was started... Uh, almost 15 years ago when my son was diagnosed at 18 months old and I'd never heard of hypophosphatasia before and uh, I'm actually a journalist by trade so I quickly looked for the advocacy group to find other patients to start advocating for the disease only to find out that there wasn't one and so we started soft bones and, and started to try to build a community of patients to help them to realize that they weren't alone felt very alone in the beginning because I was here in the U.S. and the patients that I connected with online, one was in Germany, one was in France, and one was in Canada. Uh, and there were some here in the U.S., um, in Arizona, and uh, in Ohio. And here I am in New Jersey, uh, feeling like I lived on an island. And forming that group was a success in and of itself, connecting with other patients. But coming together and, and having a collective patient voice while there was a, you know, a commercial company out there that was looking to develop and commercialize an enzyme replacement therapy and being there to help to provide patient insights to make sure that that medication would be impactful and, 
used by patients and that it was packaged in a way that would be easy for them to use and it, it would be adhered to from a dosing standpoint, there was a lot of successes that we had collaborating to try to bring this enzyme replacement therapy to an FDA approval that was in 2015. And as you can imagine, that was um, life-changing for some of our patients. There's patients who literally um, probably would not have made it if they hadn't had access to this drug that helped them to be able to have mineralized rib cages and supported airways and were able to support them in coming off of some of this uh, you know, assisted respiratory aid that they were on with ventilators and such. So we've just seen lives transformed. I mean, if you watch some of the videos of patients who can't go up a flight of stairs without going one foot at a time, and then six months later, you see them hopping up the stairs one foot at a time, it's, it's pretty amazing to watch and something that's been one of the most rewarding parts of, of having this organization. I'd like to thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Sure. Thanks. My friends, when it comes to Ben Fulton's case, let me ask the obvious question. Why? Why is such training not mandatory? How is it that we in society can talk all this good game about inclusion and accessibility, yet when it comes down to the individual level, things like this are still allowed to slip through the cracks? I'm telling you, my friends, we as a people can do better. It's always about taking those personal steps forward, making sure that we're doing what we can to include the disability community. This has been HandyLink. I'm your host, Cam Wells, reminding you we're all equal. So get on out there and have yourselves a good one. Something tells me you've earned it, folks. We'll see you next week.